Welcome to the Build My Online Store podcast, where we discuss everything and anything about running an online store. If you like the podcast, sign up for the mailing list to get news and updates at buildmyonlinestore.com. And now, here's your host, Terry Lynn. Welcome to episode 55 of the Build My Online Store podcast. I'm your host, Terry, and this week I've got Rachel Blistein from Original Moxie, where she's going to talk about launching her own cosmetics lines in the organic hair care market uh, online. So before we start, we're going to talk about some news and updates to the show. We got a new five-star iTunes review this week from My Dogs Are Barking, and he says, I've had an online store since 1999. Inherent in the e-commerce line of work is the constant search for new and innovative ways to improve your customer's experience while on your site. If that's not in your genetic code, you won't last in e-commerce. I appreciate your interviews that act to share the ideas and experiences of both new and seasoned entrepreneurs. You give us fresh ideas and help keep us plugged into the work of others. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And, uh, he linked his website. Uh, he didn't leave his name, but it's uh, myfootshop.com. So check it out uh, if you got a minute or two. So uh, one other thing I want to flag to you guys is a, a new blog post over at uh, foreverjobless.com by uh, Billy Murphy. It's a really, really good post on how to analyze risk and make decisions based on ex- his experience playing professional poker. Uh, definitely something you should check out because he's taken that experience and the knowledge uh, into the e-commerce world. And I think one of the highlights, uh, just to give you a quick uh, preview is that you know he talks about how people are so afraid of risk that a lot of people make the decisions uh, based on not trying to lose, which obviously is a suboptimal strategy if your goal is to win. And so I think we all have goals we want to accomplish, but sometimes it's easy to get caught up into not taking risks uh, because your kind of emotions say, hey, you know, this, this could happen. What if you fail? Uh, what if something bad happens? And then you kind of get blinded by the logic side, which tells you about the upside. And so really avoiding a road that could lead to success just to avoid risk uh, is really how most people make their decisions in life, whether kind of in school, uh, you know, you know, on jobs, careers, kind of what I've noticed too. And certainly I've made this mistake myself too. And so, uh, you know, if you avoid risk for the sake of avoiding risk, uh, you do avoid chances at real success too. So uh, great stuff in this post. Definitely check it out if you haven't already, and I'll link it up in the show notes. So uh, with that being said, uh, let's get into this week's episode. All right, all right. Well, thanks so much, Rachel, for coming on the show. So today, uh, we're going to talk about your business, Original Moxie. So real quick, uh, who are you and what do you do? My name is Rachel Blistein, and I'm the founder and uh, CEO, I guess, of Original Moxie Natural Hair Care. Uh, we make natural hair care products. Um, we've got a fairly extensive, diverse line of eco-friendly hair care. Business has been in existence since officially since 2009. So this is our fourth year. Nice, nice. So what are your main products line? Generally, in the beauty market, you'll find um, they'll sort of be either lines that are segregated by uh, ethnicity. Uh, that's fairly common to see, you know, brands that are more targeted towards the black hair care market, or you have kind of mainstream products that tend to kind of focus on outcomes like smooth hair, you know, if you're trying to go frizz-free, products that are supposed to make your hair curly. But where we saw a niche was really in creating products that addressed kind of real world hair care needs rather than sort of these artificial divisions that were basically created by uh, marketing folks. We felt that the most important aspect of hair to target in terms of matching customers with the correct product 
was moisture level. I see. And so for my male listeners, including me, myself, where we know nothing about hair, I mean, what does moisturizer do for the hair or why do we need to keep it moisturized? Right. So um, so if you have dry hair, then generally speaking, I mean, and that could be straight coarse hair, it could be curly, thick hair. But if you have dry hair, then generally um, it's difficult for it to stay moisturized. You'll probably have issues with uh, your hair breaking, um, kind of looking dull, um, frizzy. Those are just kind of some of the things that can happen if your hair is chronically dry and you don't address it. Is, is this a look? Is this a look I get when I wake up in the morning and my hair is like all messy and it's dry like that? Or uh, I don't know. I mean, looking at your at your picture here, I would say that your hair is probably <laughs> nothing compared to mine in the morning. When I wake up in the morning, <laughs> um, my hair is really something to behold because I have so much of it. But um, it's not really messy necessarily. It would just it would, it would make your hair look messier, I guess, if you had very dry hair. So when you wake up in the morning, you probably, I'm guessing, can just sort of run your fingers through it and it looks halfway decent. <laughs> and I noticed your picture, you kind of have an afro going a little bit too, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so my heritage is that my, um, my curly hair actually comes from my um, Irish, uh, the Irish side of my family. Um, and my great-grandfather, I'm sure it goes back beyond him, but he's kind of the earliest family member that we have pictures of. Um, had the same kind of hair that I have. And then that got passed down to my grandmother and my mother. And uh, it's just very, very thick, curly hair. Um, Afro pretty much, you know, sums it up on, on certain days. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know, so we were talking about kind of the generic uh, one-size-fits-all shampoo, conditioner, and moisturizer you get on the market. So how did you go from that into niching down, knowing that, you know, it was really the moisture that mattered in the hair? Well, I mean, it was really my personal experience. Um, that's how I started the company was that um, at the time I was, I had been chemically relaxing my hair for about 15 years. Um, so basically from the time I was in high school into my early 30s. Um, and I was growing my hair out. I was uh, gradually tapering off with the relaxer. And I was just really frustrated that I couldn't find any products, natural or otherwise, that actually would help me to manage my hair. And I also kind of got jaded about the way that they were marketed because, um, like I said, it was either, you know, the products I found that tended to work better for my hair were generally in the black hair care section. And it just bothered me that, you know, a lot of people have dry or curly hair, and yet there was really nothing on the market for them. Um, and it also bothered me that, you know, so much of our population, our population is very diverse, like worldwide, there are many more people who have uh, curly, thick, dry hair um, than that have straight, oily hair. And yet the majority of products were really kind of skewed towards the straight hair market. Mm -hmm. Did you come from a cosmetics background when you were making these products or? Well, that's kind of the other strange thing about my background is that no, I have, I'm a complete industry outsider. Um, I've always been very interested in natural beauty and cosmetics and tinkered with it, you know, uh, when I was in high school, nothing serious, but I was always interested in it. Um, and my intro into it was really more through the, um, the natural and herbal side, because my background, my training as, as a landscape architect, actually, um, I have a master's degree in landscape architecture and practice as a landscape architect for 10 years, which sounds completely unrelated <laughs> to what I'm doing now. 
Um, and mostly it is, but uh, the one similarity is really just that I'm really interested in plants. And so when I started um, trying to address my own hair care needs, that was where I started, was looking at various plants and naturally derived substances from plants and that could uh, make your hair healthier. Everything that I've learned about formulating the products, I've, I'm completely self-taught. So I read books, lots and lots of information. There are experts willing to help consult you when you're formulating your own products. Um, and so I really just, it was trial and error and um, persistence <laughs> more than anything else and interest. And did you go with it knowing that you were going to turn this into a business at first or were you just experimenting to make products for yourself? And then one day someone said, hey, maybe you should sell this. Pretty much exactly the latter. So I, I started out doing it for myself. Um, my husband's hair is the complete opposite of mine. And so after I kind of had my set of products that I was fiddling around with for myself, I decided to try and make something for his hair because I figured, you know, he deserves good hair care as much as I do. Um, his issues are much different. He's more worried about thinning hair and increasing volume and uh, things like that. But um, I was interested in the challenge. So I kind of started just with, with our needs and then gradually was like giving them to friends and family. Um, and exactly, yeah, little by little, there was more interest and people were asking for to try them. Um, I was lucky to know a couple people who uh, were professional stylists and so they helped me sort of test the products on their customers um, and um, and also just give me feedback on you know what what they were hearing and what they felt there was a need for. Mm-hmm. And so what did your first version of the product look like? Because I'm sure the first one probably didn't have all the marketing, the branding, the logos oh, on it too, right? Yeah, no. Our <laughs> first our first attempt were our logos completely changed. That was actually a really kind of pivotal moment in the development of the, of the company, really. When I started out, I um, it was hard enough just to figure out a company name. And honestly, looking back now, I still have my initial attempts, you know, sheets of paper with all these potential names <laughs> written down on them. And it's hard for me to actually recall why I settled on Original Moxie. I mean, I know I know what led me to it initially, but I can't remember, you know, that moment where I was like, yes, that is it. But, uh, but when I did kind of have a name, then I played with all these different logos that would sort of help to interpret the, the vibe of the, what I was trying to express with the name and the company. Um, and it started out, believe it or not, as an apple. Um, I just had like this kind of uh, vintage looking Apple thing on a label. And I think I was trying to draw a parallel between like original Moxie and original Sin or something like that. I'm not really sure. And just sort of being uppity and doing your own thing. And that just looked terrible. Um, that was my first attempt. I did it on an inkjet printer and, you know, the labels bled. It was just, it was a mess. And that was totally when I was just kind of selling the family and friends. And then I kind of uh, eventually got kind of narrowed in on the idea of having a peacock be our logo because I felt like that was a really good, um, not only was it kind of a unisex symbol that would kind of be appealing to men and women, um, I felt like it was also just kind of a great signifier of being proud of who you are and not trying to hide, you know, your inner beauty. But my first attempt at a peacock, I had a friend um, who had some graphic design business um, helped me do um, kind of the version two of the labels that was a little bit more professional. And this was when we were officially selling to stores and salons. Um, and so they looked a little bit better, um, but they had no uh, scalability. So it was way too detailed. Um, there were all these little bits and, you know, little knobs and crevices and stuff on the peacock. And there wasn't really a great hierarchy of the text on the label. But the main issue was, I think, that the, the contour itself of the peacock was way too complex for a logo. Um, and uh, when I finally found a great uh, graphic design firm to work with, that's when things really shifted and 
we wound up with a, a logo and a label and packaging design that were leaps and bounds ahead of, of where we had been. So I'm extremely grateful for their help with that. Yeah. So in terms of the logo, which stages is this coming? Because I, th- I know a lot of people starting out, they're like, oh, I got to get a website. I got to get the logo. But you had the product already selling before you got the logo or kind of where did this fall into the whole process? Um, I think it was about a year into officially selling the product um, that I decided to um, change the logo um, and work with a graphic design firm. And even at that point, even though we had a very small number of customers, um, I was still nervous about doing it because we had, you know, a logo that people were used to seeing. We had a color scheme that, you know, and a palette that were associated already with the product. So it was a little bit risky even then to do it, but I'm, again, you know, incredibly grateful that I did do it. You know, I mean, I don't think it's essential that people start with the, you know, professionally designed logo. Um, and that's probably unrealistic for most people. I know I didn't have the capital to do that when I was initially starting out. Um, but I think most people probably just kind of take a crack at doing a logo on their own and limp along with that for a while um, before they really get serious about it. Uh, but it does make a big difference in how your brand is perceived. And I felt like it was important to do that at the beginning rather than, you know, if the, if the company was successful, I really didn't want to do that after we had uh, some recognizability. Um, and then it would be even more traumatic to the customers that were already established. And so, you know, what was the first feedback you got when you were, you know, you sold the first version of this product? You know, what are your first customers? What was the feedback like? Um, generally the feedback was good and that's what kind of encouraged me to keep going. Um, I really had a much smaller group of products that I started out with. So now we have 18. Um, and then in the very beginning, I think I had, um, I had three or so. It was probably, it would have depended on the product. I mean, I, I think that one of the first things I developed actually was our no foam shampoos. Um, which at the time, that was actually still a fairly new idea. I think now you see a lot more uh, foam-free and low-foam shampoos on the market, so it's becoming a little bit more acceptable and understood. Why is foam bad in shampoo? I'm sorry. I'm just curious. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. Um, and I understand it's, it's different for guys, for sure. So foam isn't bad in and of itself. It's just that if you do have dry hair like I do, most shampoos, um, the, the really vigorous foam that you see when you wash your hair, um, that's generally overkill. Um, and the, the chemicals that are used to achieve that are detergents. I mean, they're industrial strength detergents. Nowadays, you see a lot more that are sulfate-free um, and uh, a little bit gentler. But in general, if you are getting a really big foam, it's stripping your hair. So um, by doing a no foam, but still having a, you know, a shampoo that would actually cleanse your hair, um, it's going to clean off the excess oil and dirt and build up, but it's not going to strip your hair's natural oil, if that makes sense. So the, so the, Commercial stuff is basically detergent that has some, you know, scent that makes it smell good and coloring that it that kind of like hides it, right? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, not to be cynical and say that all the products out there are bad. And actually, even a lot of the mainstream products are gradually adding in more and more natural ingredients just because the public is more interested in that. But in general, yes, I mean, they're still kind of using the same playbook where um, they're going more for well, you know, people want to have a foam, which is true. A lot of people really like having that really big foam. It just is a psychological feeling of I'm clean. Yeah, it's like the it's like the bubble bath thing. Like, hey, I like foam and it makes me feel clean. And <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I totally get that. You know, I totally, and it took me a while to wean myself off of it, to be honest. So going back to your question, at that when I, I remember when I did that product um, and people were like, how do I use this? I don't understand. How do I know my hair is clean? So even though the feedback there was, you know, a little bit of unfamiliarity with how to use the product and kind of 
some level of discomfort because it wasn't really um, the norm. I, I did incorporate that feedback to some extent, but I also kind of kept the nature of the product the same. So that was an instance of, you know, me just kind of sticking with my gut that this is the best thing for your hair and it's going to catch on. And actually, it's one of our top sellers now. So I'm glad that I didn't change that too much. Yeah, and that's interesting that you built it into the feedback because I think I think there's a couple of ways you can take feedback. You can take it like, oh, you know, you don't know how to use this and kind of take like an arrogant way or you can say, hey, you know, this is an opportunity for me to show people you know, what it actually is and kind of tweak my copy on the website too. So Absolutely. Yeah. We're always trying to kind of walk that line between staying true to who we are and what our principles are. Um, and then also really kind of educating customers about why it's good. <laughs> we still have a couple things, you know, that I feel like are um, more of a challenge to communicate. Um, one being that we don't have artificial fragrances in our product. I feel really strongly about that, mainly because artificial fragrance tends to have, well, it's always completely a sort of black box item on the ingredients because it's considered a trade secret. So manufacturers are not required to list the chemicals and there can be hundreds of chemicals in just one fragrance. You won't necessarily know what you're putting into your product. Um, and then I feel like that's also sort of, you know, um, compounded when you give it to a customer who then doesn't know, you know, what's in there. And there are a lot of um, bad chemicals that tend, tend to be in artificial fragrances. Um, so that's why we choose not to use them. But uh, many of our customers are used to the very, very kind of perfumey fragrance that you get from, uh, from most products. Even natural products tend to use artificial fragrances um, just because that's such a, again, another psychological thing where you're used to having everything like your shampoo, your conditioner, your styler, um, your laundry detergent, your spray cleaner, everything, you know, that's kind of how you feel like it's working is because you can really smell it. And we do use essential oil fragrances, which are really lovely, but they're much more subtle. And um, we've also found that people tend to sort of, if they're not familiar with essential oil fragrances and they're just used to the artificial smells, um, they tend to sort of lump them all in a category where they just say, well, it kind of smells herbal. And I like it, um, but it's just herbal. And so they, their brains don't really seem to be familiar enough with them to really differentiate because all the smells in our products are quite different from one another. And once you get used to them, it's like, wow, yeah, that's, you know, this one is much more citrusy and has cedar. And this other one over here has spearmint. And, um, you know, so there are really um, stark differences between them, but sometimes customers can't really detect that difference. It's just a really interesting phenomenon. I see. And so how do you... Uh you know, you started out with your no foam shampoo. How do you branch into new products when something like smell you were just talking about is very personal for each person? We generally um, will create a new product when there's kind of an aggregate of um, requests or um, issues that are that are being mentioned to us by our customers. Um, so in the very beginning, you know, I started with a couple, like I said, I think it was three products, like a, a shampoo, a conditioner, and a leave-in um, that I created for myself. And then as I spoke to more and more people, um, you know, I'd have someone say, you know, I'd really like a um, a product that I can use on my hair to sort of increase volume, but won't make it feel sticky. Um, so we just kind of were gathering all of this information. And in the very beginning, like I said, I, I had the, the freedom to basically just think, okay, well, let me just see if I can do this. And, um, and then I would give it to that person to test and take their feedback and go back to the drawing board usually. So it was a very responsive process, which I think is partly why our products are fairly successful is because it was this problem-solving-driven approach that initially created um, probably uh, 100% of the line. Now that we're finally in a position to kind of, you know, our initial products are 
stable and we're being able to put more resources towards really helping develop and promote those, we're gradually being able to go back to the product development process. And, um, and it's the same sort of thing. We've had requests for a number of things that we've been keeping track of and um, we sort of take that to heart and then, you know, look at our, you know, how, how, we, how we're going to interpret that with the range of ingredients that WorkMit is using. Um, and then, you know, working out all the challenges from, uh, from fragrance, uh, because sometimes the natural ingredients actually don't have a fantastic smell on their own. Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, natural, just because it's natural doesn't mean that it smells great. <laughs> um, and in fact, when you use unrefined um, ingredients, like unrefined uh, pumpkin seed oil, for example, it has a really kind of off-putting, uh, it's nutty, uh, but it's very earthy. <laughs> um, so, you know, we kind of look at functionality first of the product and then developing the fragrance for it comes second um, or last even. Um, and that can actually be one of the most challenging things because you want it to really kind of match the personality of the product, but it also has to be palatable to a wide variety of people. Um, yeah, I like your process where you say you start off with an aggregate amount of requests first, so you know you're not just making random products that'll you know maybe or maybe not hit the market, and then you kind of test small before you scale it up into the whole store, rather than just saying, hey, you know, hundred people want uh, you know strawberry almond moisturizer, and then you just create it, and then realize that some people like it, some people don't, right? It's like a process you take to the market. Right, exactly. And now that we've been doing this for a little while, we actually can look at um, the feedback on the products that we do have and also kind of interpret that and bring that forward to the new products we're making. Um, for example, we have a couple, uh, one of our, another one that's a real strong seller but it tends to be very polarizing um, as far as the scent called Emollients and it's a pre-treatment, very popular and I would say it's 50-50. Half the people that use it absolutely love the fragrance which has a lot of cinnamon and spearmint and both those are really strong scents. Um, and half people cannot stand it and will use the product anyway because they really like the product, uh, but they will know, you know, but I don't like the fragrance. With future products, we really try and kind of stick to the fragrances now that are going to be more appealing and less controversial, um, even though I, you know, I think it's essential oils were the best fit for that product for a number of reasons. But, um, but again, you really, for marketability, want to try and avoid anything like that that's going to create controversy around an item. Yeah, interesting. All right. And so, you know, for someone that's just starting out, you know, that they don't have this feedback loop, I mean, how long did it take for you to get to the point where you could say, hey, you know, we have enough demand to test this out. Let's go develop this product. Well, you know, I was kind of foolhardy in a way. And when the business finally officially launched in 2009, I actually had 20 products that we launched with. And two of those actually never really, so we launched saying that two were coming soon and they were still in the product development process. And that was probably one of my uh, really big early errors that I made. Um, we had labels printed for them. I had the core ingredients set, but I could never really get them to gel. And then we got busy and couldn't go back to actually finalize that product development process. So for a year or so after we launched, I still had customers asking, when are you going to come out with this product? Came back now, no one launches with 18 products. I mean, that's just, uh, so 18 is what we have now and that's what survives. But even that is a huge number of products when you're actually manufacturing it yourself. Many of them had different ingredients. So it wasn't even like we were using the same five ingredients in every product. So it was a huge amount of inventory to manage. Ideally, if I had it to do all over again, um, of course, the company would be very different, but I think ideally when you're starting out as a, a new business in this particular industry, it's better to have a very small core group of products, like maybe three, um, that are simple, 
and easy and have a you know a good margin um, and really kind of build from those to more complex and costly items. So I think it's better to start small, kind of work out the kinks and then build on what you know from there. Yeah. And so you said you launched with uh, 20 products at first. Was it just by yourself? Did, did you have any business partners or anyone helping you? No, this was, I did everything myself. So I created the products. I actually made the products. I did order fulfillment myself. Um, the only help I had really was uh, my husband helped me, but that was really just kind of, he has a full-time job. So um, it would be on the weekends and, you know, if I needed help holding, I don't know, little hang tags for the bottles or something like that, I'm sure I dragged him into hundreds of projects like that. Nice. And so how big is your team right now? I'm sure it's not just you, right? No, it's not just me now. Thank God. Um, so I have uh, the core members of our team and this fluctuates sometimes depending on the busyness. We're still a fairly small company. So um, there's me, there's our production manager, and she does all of the actual formulating and creating products on a, on a daily basis. She manages inventory. She kind of handles that whole piece of the puzzle. And it took a while to find somebody that was a really good fit for that and who I could train to do things exactly as I wanted them to be done um, so that she was getting the same outcome that I was getting. And then we also have uh, a great order fulfillment person now who also happens to be very savvy with social media. Um, and so she kind of fills two roles because she's doing order fulfillment about half time. And then she's doing other projects like building our Instagram account and uh, tweeting and all that stuff. Uh, taking pictures. She's a great photographer. So we really lucked out with her because she's a good writer. She can help us with the email newsletter and things like that. Um, and that takes a big burden off of me. Um, and then we've got um, consultants that we work with on bookkeeping. And then we've got our graphic design team, which is a, also a consultant. So it really frees you up to do the more strategic kind of long-term stuff in the business, right? I'm still doing more of the day-to-day -day stuff than I would like. We're about ready to break through like maybe a month away. Um, we're actually in the middle of developing a sales kit. Um, it's our first like professional sales kit that we've had. And we just recently started working with a wholesale broker in the East Coast. That was sort of the impetus to finally pull our sales kit together. Um, and once that's done, that's sort of been um, taking a lot of my time right now to kind of work with the graphic design team on developing that. Our, our inventory management and accounting database is finally completely done. And we're actually able to use that to get real-time feedback basically on what we're doing right uh, what we're doing wrong, what we might need to shift, you know, everything from shipping fees to uh, lowering unit costs of, uh, of individual items that we order. Um, and that was like a, a three-year project, getting that to the point that it is now. And actually, my production manager is learning how to, to do QuickBooks so that she can actively manage that and really kind of take that piece of it off of my, off of my list as well. And so once we're done with that transition, I will fully have more time to do uh, kind of the high-level marketing and things like that that I should be focusing most of my time on. Nice, nice, right? And so just one more thing about the product. So for a bottle like like a shampoo bottle or like a can of, you know, gel, like how hard is it to actually design something to go on there? Oh, man, really hard. <laughs> um, I mean, even just from where I sit, I mean, there's the copywriting aspect, which is very difficult. I did all the copywriting for both our website and for the for the products. But I think many companies generally hire, hire somebody else to do that. But, you know, there are so many layers. There's the, there's the graphic layer so that it, it's legible and appealing on the shelf. You have to do a survey of um, which we did of kind of all the all the other products that our product would likely be in competition with. So there's that aspect of it. There's the personality of the brand and just like really strongly communicating that. Um, 
but also in a way that's going to be, again, you know, appealing to somebody that's just walking by and has never heard of it before. Um, and then there's the, the legal side of it where you have to, you know, go through all the FDA guidelines as far as what you have to have listed on the product. Just recently, when we began selling our product in a small way uh, overseas, we took that into consideration when we revised our labels because we had to have a whole new set of requirements on there. So there's just a lot of a lot of stuff to take into consideration. And I think the first time that we when we first launched the new branding, so we basically designed our labels three times. Uh, we did we had kind of my effort when in the very beginning when I was just doing it on my own, um, which was very pedestrian and and bad. <laughs> Um, So there was that version one. Version two was when we first started working with the graphic design company, but we were their first natural hair care company. And that was our first attempt at doing it professionally. Um, And so after about a year of getting feedback from customers and just kind of looking at it on the shelf and working with it, we decided to do it one more time. And that's what we have right now. Um, And I feel like what we have now is very successful, but it took three attempts to get it there. And each time was a huge, huge project. I mean, months. Month and month before. Yeah, because I, I know for these products, you li- you have like half a second to catch a consumer's eye if they don't know who you are, like in a store, right? And so yeah, it's really tricky. I mean, and, and especially with, as you said, you know, uh, the beauty industry is so image driven that you know, particularly if you don't have a huge marketing budget, which we don't, and you can't afford to you know have big flashy advertisements in magazines, um, you really kind of that that shelf presence is more important than almost anything else because that's your big opportunity to grab somebody. And and it's a split second decision. And there are so many other products you know around. And generally speaking, you know not not ugly. You know most people have <laughs> pretty decent packaging. So it's, you're trying to stand out in a very crowded kind of um, field that has a lot of you know a lot of thought and money behind it. Um, so it's really tricky. Yeah, exactly. There was another business I talked to uh, that they were on the Shark Tank. I think two years ago. It was these four brothers. You know, they're like single guys and they're like late twenties, early thirties, making like organic cosmetics out of like coconut oil yeah <laughs> and basically they were the face of the whole company because they're just these four good-looking guys and it was so different because you know everything else is like some marketing brand from like a ad agency and then you just have these four guys that are good looking going around promoting the product and it, it worked great for them i know and it's just i mean it's inspiring to hear stories like that to me just because um you know you're like i said you're competing against people with really sophisticated marketing machines um and it takes a lot of guts to just be the face of your brand and you know you're the you're the person that takes it door to door basically in the beginning it's hard you know i mean it's almost a liability to be the owner and representing your brand because then customers at least in our field may be automatically suspicious of well, why don't you have a sales rep you know doing this for you um, and we do now thank goodness but you know i still do a fair amount of marketing myself and uh, and you really are you know being the face of of the brand, uh, which is a, an odd feeling, especially if I'm not a marketing person by training or background or anything else. Um, and so putting yourself in that role is a uh, new experience um, for a lot of people that are entrepreneurs. And I think it's something that you don't necessarily expect. You know, you get into it because you have this passion for whatever it is you're creating. And then the marketing aspect is just the whole other animal that you have to really quickly sort of learn how to manage um, and be good at. Um, and I think that's a, a huge challenge for, for new business owners without a business 
background um, or a sales background. Yeah, and just go go into that a little more. Like, I'm not sure about Paige, and you really like put yourself on there. Like, you have pictures of yourself growing up, you know, your family with you know your kind of crazy hair, and then like, like you really put yourself out there. So, I mean, was this a conscious decision you made from day one, or did you realize that hey, you know, I'm just gonna put myself out there, you know, make me the face of the business and see where this goes? It was a it was a conscious decision, um, you know, because I did do some reading before um, we had the website as far as whether it's a good idea always to be the face of your brand or whether you want to have it be more anonymous. The products sort of have a very conversational uh, tone. I think the labeling on the products and the way that the website developed, and I felt like it would be odd not to have a person, you know, that you could connect with if you were somebody coming to the website or looking at the product. And um, I'm glad that I did that. Actually, I think. The pitfall of that is that even as the company has gotten really big, I still have people um, expecting that they can call or email and, and talk to me right away, you know, about whatever they're <laughs> burning hair care. Um, and so we're kind of trying to transition our customers away from that, um, especially the ones who've been with us for a long time. But um, we still want, you know, of course, to have great customer support. Um, and I still want to be accessible to all of our customers. Um, but it's difficult as you have more and more, as you become busier and busier, you know, you still want to represent the brand and, you know, be real with people. But at the same time, you're actually spending so much of your time um, doing all these other things. It becomes kind of challenging. Um, but yeah, I'm glad we did that. I mean, I think that it's important for people. Our company is kind of about real products for real people. And it would it would not fit, I don't think, if we didn't have a real person um, that was kind of the, you know, the face of the brand. Yeah, and I think these days you just can't be anonymous anymore online because otherwise what separates you from some, you know, PNG product that's out there in the mass market, right? Yeah, and I think people are much more um, suspicious, especially kind of in the green and natural hair care market. Um, you know, we kind of have two streams customer-wise. Um, there are customers that may have straight hair or fine hair uh, or curly hair, but they're kind of coming to us more because they're interested in the eco-friendly aspect. And then we also have customers because we have a really strong curly hair line, uh, which coincides with the extra moisturizing in general. Um, in both of those communities, there's a really um, inherent mistrust of the man, you know, and really big companies masquerading as small companies. Uh, you've got your Procter & Gamble who may have a spinoff you know, eco-friendly or curly hair line, but um, you can usually tell <laughs> when that's when that's happening. And people are are marketing savvy enough now to generally know when that is the case. Yeah. All right. And so let's move into a little bit about sales and marketing. So, you know, what are the main channels you use now that you found work really well for the business? You know, we are constantly kind of trying to put our finger on exactly what the best way is to reach out to our customers. So I wish I could tell you that we've got it figured out. Um, I think that um, where we're headed right now um, is kind of a hybrid between doing a strong uh, kind of retail initiative that it would include like search engine optimization, um, social media um, engagement campaigns with our customers like uh, email newsletters and um, Facebook and stuff like that. Um, and then just having a really strong accessible website, um, which I think is kind of where a lot of our retail customers come from. And then on the other hand, um, and we, I think that that's actually, if we, especially with the search engine optimization, the more we're putting into that, uh, we're kind of getting, it's a gradual payoff, but it's one that I'm, I feel like it's going to be a really um, 
great way to kind of keep building the, the retail customer base. And it's kind of in the background, so you don't have to hit people over the head with an advertising campaign. So I like that. It's uh, it's costly and it's complicated and it requires a lot of time, you know, just to kind of keep it current. But I feel like that is uh, probably our number one strategy for the retail side of the business. On the wholesale side, it's a whole different ball game, um, And we're just trying to build networks of uh, basically wholesale brokers, educators, um, people that we can work with who can represent us to salons and boutiques and um, upscale pharmacies and things like that. So it's two kind of completely different approaches. And um, as I mentioned before, the sales kit that we're working on right now is really kind of focused on developing the wholesale side of the business. And I'm excited about that to see how, you know, once we have kind of a professional kit that's both, it's, it's intended to be both kind of a press kit and a sales kit, I think that's going to kind of open some doors for us. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how retail goes because I know there's another business I talked to where basically uh, offline wholesale became so big that their online store just became like a place for people to buy it where they when they couldn't find it or something. Instead right. of may, have, being just online, right. or kind of it shifted because of their sales. When we first launched the website, you know, 80% of our business was retail and maybe 20% were wholesale, even though I started out as a wholesale company. Our first customers were all wholesale. And this year, it looks like it's going to be closer to 50-50. So um, I feel like the, the website is really kind of ultimately in those situations, it's kind of a really developed business card. You know, I mean, it's like introducing your product, people um, giving them all the information they need, and then they may go out and buy it from one of your wholesale customer, wholesale clients. We're going to see how it turns out. I'd really ultimately I'd like to have a healthy retail and wholesale. Um, but if it winds up being more in the direction of wholesale, then I think, um, you know, if we get to that point, it means that you're selling at a really large scale. And so that's, uh, that's a good thing. Exactly. And so you touched upon, you know, you started out with the website and the wholesaler. So how did you get a wholesaler just when you launched too? I'm kind of curious. First real orders were, um, were a couple of ones that were local and that I knew somebody and kind of had an in with. And so there was a comfort level there with them being willing to try something brand new and clearly amateur at that point. And then when we really kind of hit our first big customer, it was a local, um, we have a store in Michigan called Plum Market that's kind of a, a smaller version of Whole Foods. Um, so they have multiple locations and it's a very swanky, you know, nice place to shop. And uh, one of our customers was shopping there and got a compliment on her hair from the apothecary manager and told her about our brand and told me that she told her about our brand and I contacted her and a couple weeks later they were carrying the product. Um, and the good thing about starting out with wholesale was that um, I was coming from a place where the margins were much tighter. And so when we got into the retail, it was like, wow, <laughs> you know, we've got all this extra, <laughs> extra stuff to play with, you know? So not that I would recommend anyone starting out wholesale. That's, that's really hard. And I don't think you know enough. Most people don't know enough about how much money they're actually making at that point to realize how tight the margins are. <laughs> you don't you don't realize that until you're already in it. Like I said, that's why ideally we'd have kind of a balance of retail and wholesale. Yeah, and I understand hair salons make most of their money off actually not the cuts, but the products, right? Like yep. the side products, they upsell you yep. afterwards. Exactly, yeah. And when we have uh, good salons that we work with, they sell a lot of product. I mean, they. I think maybe this is more an experience that women have, but you know, when you go see your stylist, um, it's really hard to say no if they, <laughs> they recommend a product to you. I mean, I've been in that situation so many times. Um, hopefully it's the right product for you. And we work really hard with our salons to keep them trained and make sure they're matching the right customers to the right products. But um, but I think there's something about that environment that um, it's just like, uh, 
you just walk out with product and you don't even know how it happened. So I, I have a hypothesis. I think it's because they make you sit there and then after you're done, they kind of let you sit there for a while. They're going to say, hey, we're going to put this and this in your hair just to finish it up. But they leave it in front of you and then you kind of start looking at it and then you're like, oh, you know, it's, it looks pretty good on me after they use it and then you just buy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And most people look pretty good when they're leaving the salon. So maybe it's the cut, maybe it's the application, maybe it's the product, you know. But yeah, you want to keep that going, so you're gonna um, buy it. Yeah, that's a that's a good hypothesis. I think it is something like that. Yeah, exactly. And you're seeing how the product works while you're sitting there, kind of sitting down in kind of a you know susceptible environment to take you know in stuff yeah. into your head. <laughs> yep, and I think it gives it instant credibility too. It's there in the salon, and that a professional you know is using this on you and saying good things about it. That's the other. I mean, salons truly are our favorite customers to work with, um, other than retail customers who we have a really direct connection with because they are so fully trained on the product and they also have a background in, you know, and I won't say the science of hair exactly, but, you know, they know what they're talking about in general. I and so I want to dig into a little bit about wholesale somewhere. So I understand the average kind of industry wholesale price is like 50% off retail, but when you're starting out, do you just tell them, hey, you know, I'm making this product, you know, here's what I think I'm going to sell that. I'll just give it to you for X amount off or like how does that negotiation process tend to work? Well, um, in the very beginning, I, I really didn't know. I mean, I actually had people tell me what their, um, you know, the first very first time I went to talk to a wholesale customer, um, you know, I was shocked when they said that their uh, markup is 100 percent, the margin 50 percent. And, you know, I was like, wow. <laughs> that's just that's really high but then you get used to that you know but exactly I mean you're kind of I think you go to them when you're first starting out you know again you know I was a complete uh, you know just amateur and I priced the products not even looking at like the actual costs to make them I, I priced them based on what other similar products were selling for um, that were kind of more on the high-end schemes I knew I wasn't making cheap products so I knew enough to know that I couldn't go bar- bargain basement with the pricing um, so I think I, I wound up doing okay, um, even with the, and I, and again, you know, when I came up with the retail pricing, I had no idea that I was going to have to knock 50% off their wholesale. Since then, we've obviously gotten more sophisticated with how we price the products, but honestly, it hasn't diverged that much from, from where we started. I think we kind of got lucky that uh, we wound up still having built-in margins that were okay. You know, some of them, I wish they were better, but uh, certain products like shampoos and conditioners in particular our shampoos and conditioners are actually some of our most expensive products to make. We try to keep them fairly low compared to all the other products because people use them every day. Um, so you, you don't want it to be such a, an expensive product that it's going to be out of reach for 90% of the population. Um, and that can be tricky. So I, I wish that I had um, paid more attention to pricing and, and you know actually figuring out the cost things before we launched. Um, and if I'd had more of a business background, I certainly would have would have done that, but um, I didn't actually get around to doing that until probably 2010. So we had already we'd already officially launched. I think that was right before the website launched. Um, that might, would have been like the end of 2010. So we'd been going for like two years, and I didn't really finish figuring that out. So it was a complicated process. Um, I didn't really finish figuring it out until 2011, 2012. Um, and since then, every year we actually look at, you know, because our raw materials change all the time as far as what the unit pricing is. But the other layer, once you get more into um, selling wholesale, is that when you're working with a broker, it's not just 50% off. It's their commission on top of that. Um, it's all of the free samples that you're expected to supply to them so that they can sell the product to other people. 
Um, and then generally speaking, there's an opening order discount on top of that. So really it winds up being an 85% discount in some cases. So you're, you're almost giving it to them at cost then basically, if it's 85%, like that's crazy. What I aim for, and I think we're successful at, at the moment, is that I still get, uh, mark, that a product is still marked up four times above the cost is, even with everybody's commission paid. Um, I try not to go below certain amounts with the 10% off, but um, for the opening order, because you, yeah, you can, you can basically wind up if you're not careful, you are basically selling the product for exactly what you're spending to make it. And then when you add in all the other things that are sort of overhead costs, you're losing money. Yeah. In terms of the wiggle room, you get squeezed really thin. Whereas I guess, you know, if you just went online and just saw you suddenly you're like, whoa, you know, everyone in the middle is gone and it goes straight to me, right? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's why retail is so attractive and, and selling through the website is so attractive because you cut out all that middleman stuff and you can really reach the consumer directly. Um, and that's so much more efficient. And generally, I think a lot of the time there's a better outcome too, because you can communicate directly with the customer. But that said, I'd say most of our customers really prefer to buy their products in a store and not online. So I think that the direction we're heading is, you know, more wholesale and wider distribution. Now we are very, very careful about watching those margins because we're aware that as we kind of creep more towards the wholesale side of things, it's um, our profit margin gets smaller and smaller. Yeah, and as your operation gets bigger, you bring on more staff, you know, your capacity to manufacture gets bigger. You know, this is all stuff that adds in. And I guess you need, I guess you need the scale from the distribution and kind of wholesale to make it work too, right? Because otherwise... Yeah, it wouldn't really make sense. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the only way that the wholesale works is if you hit a point where your, you know, the scale is just so large that that makes up for the fact that you're selling, you know, you're getting a tiny percentage of each sale. Just to be completely honest, that's we're kind of in an awkward space right now where we are upscaling our manufacturing capacity um, and the wholesale is kind of hovering just before you know you want it to be like to the point where it's really massive and the profitability is really great so we're investing a lot in infrastructure um, preparing for that growth um, because you can't really have that growth until you have the infrastructure and then at the same time you know building that growth takes time most businesses you probably have at least a year possibly two you know where you're kind of really reaching for that bigger customer um, but you don't quite have them yet and you really are spending a lot trying to get them basically um, and that's kind of where we are right now. All right. And so let's go into a little bit about your platform. So I understand you guys are on BigCommerce. How, how did you end up on that system? Or? Well, uh, we interviewed. So at the time, we were um, basically a lot was determined by the different web development companies that we were looking at working with. And our web developers actually happen to be the same as our graphic design team. They do both. Um, so we um, were looking at companies. I think most of the companies we interviewed did do both graphic and you know brand management, graphic design, and web development. Uh, most of those companies kind of have their preferred um, platform that they like to work with. Um, so in the process of interviewing them, I kind of learned a little bit about the different um, options that were available. I'm blanking out on the other one that we um, that we looked at. There's basically kind of big commerce and then this other one, which I'm drawing a blank on right now. I'll come to me in a second. Um, that are kind of at the top. Illusion, I think in terms of uh, Shopify. Yeah, or, it was yeah. Illusion. Yeah. Illusion, yeah. And um, I learned a lot from just talking to those firms as far as why they liked them, kind of what the pros and cons were. And I believe with Big Commerce, um, we had more flexibility in taking what was a template and, and kind of customizing the template for the design of the website. And I think there was another advantage over Volusion, which I believe was kind of that it was much more user friendly for the back end management side. 
of the website. So that was kind of what, at the, again, I didn't know very much about this at the time, um, but that was a compelling argument to me because I knew I was going to be the one, you know, managing this on a day-to-day basis. And I really trusted our the company that we did decide to go with. They were pretty well educated about the technical side of it, and they felt like they had never actually done a big commerce uh, website before. Um, so they were really eager to explore it. They had heard good things about it, but we also knew that there was going to be a learning curve for them in putting the, putting the website together. But I think because of that, I actually got a better price <laughs> on the web development side. Um, so it worked out. <laughs> I see. And so are there any like apps or tools or software that you can't live without when you're running the business? You know, um, I thought about that before our phone call, and there's nothing I really can't live without. We have a lot of, uh, we depend on MailChimp quite a bit. So we use MailChimp for our email newsletter. Uh, I don't know if that really counts as an app, but so that's a really handy, um, you know, uh, adjacent tool to our website. Um, there are things that are missing from our shopping cart platform that I really wish we did have. Um, the number one um, thing that I wish we had an app for was uh, something that would enable us to do um, more with uh, marketing and coupon codes and things like that. It's a somewhat flexible, but it, it's kind of um, not as flexible as it could be. And managing customer groups, because we actually have our wholesale and our retail coming through the same website. Um, and that can be, uh, it's not set up basically for you to do that. Um, they really want you to have two separate websites. And so I wish there were more, there was an app that would allow us kind of more flexibility with that. Um, and if there was, that would be the one I couldn't live without. But um, you know, the next best thing, I guess we recently started using an app called Mindful, um, which is a kind of customer engagement tool um, that tracks, it's a kind of an uh, a email newsletter kind of on on speed. So it kind of really gets in, it digs into the data on customer spending habits and allows you to engage them based on um, their purchasing pattern. And we've just started to kind of play with that and really fully explore it to the level that it really needs to be in order to get the most out of it. So I think it has a lot of potential and we're actually working on, on, on it this week to try and do more product specific um, email triggers. Um, and I think that once we really get that developed, that's going to be a really important tool for us, especially going into the summer months, which tend to be kind of uh, slower. And people tend to be a little bit less um, on the web because they're outside. So uh, or their, you know, their kids are home from school or whatever. Um, and I'm hoping that this will be an important tool for us and really kind of keeping that conversation going even in the slower yeah, gotcha, gotcha. All right. And so let's just wrap things up a little bit. So, you know, what's one thing, you know, looking back, you wish you knew starting out? Oh, man, so many. Um, I think that uh, I think the one thing that I wish I knew, although we wouldn't again, we wouldn't be the company we are today if I had known it, is more about um, how the your the price of your raw materials is going to determine the viability of your product. Some of our top sellers are some of our most expensive products to make. If I had known more at the time, you know, now that they are the way they are, we would have a riot if we tried to change any of the ingredients or lose half of our customers. People are really um, vigilant about when you change anything having to do with the formula. So really, we're kind of locked into those formulas now. Um, whereas if I had kind of looked at it on a, a cost-benefit basis when I initially created the formulations, I probably would have been, um, I would have selected different, less expensive ingredients that probably would accomplish the same thing, but would come at a less of a cost. So I wish I had known more about that um, and about pricing strategy. Have you tried bundling different products with different margins just to bring up the average or I'm just throwing this out there? That's a good idea, actually. Um, so we've, uh, we've done um, bundles, but it's usually 
a bundle that's based on um, a line or um, like we have these uh, mini mini kits. So you can get like uh, trial sizes of various kits based on your hair type. And usually, actually, I think the, the result of that is that you do bundle products together that, you know, some have a really great margin and some have a less than great margin. Uh, but it's hard to get customers to buy in sets like that. Um, usually people have, you know, their preferred products and they're very particular about it. So it's really a challenge to try and encourage people to buy more than one in a regular way. You know, I mean, people do buy more than one product, but it's so diverse that it would be hard to... Um, to really kind of, and then if you do that, you know, if you are selling three products together, people expect a discount, you know, on that. Um, your margin, you know, gets smaller there too. Yeah, I guess you know, kind of like cosmetics is a product where people get into a certain process that they like, and they don't want to to deviate from that, right? Once they once they like it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a very um, personal uh, type product to buy, um, and so I mean, maybe that's true for a lot of different products, and I'm just kind of biased because I'm focused on hair care but but yeah like you said for cosmetics too I think people have kind of a, a thing that works for them and then they're really committed to it um so um again that sort of makes it harder to pull away customers who are sort of in a routine of some sort um and encourage them to try something new which again is why we have our trial sizes because that seems to be a great way to encourage people to like step out of their comfort zone a little bit um it's a it's a low risk um purchase because it's only five dollars per mini but it's enough for them to really fully uh, explore the product. Uh, one thing we've started doing actually is, like I said, these mini kits where you actually buy four minis, but you get them for the price of three. And that's actually been a really successful tool because rather than just trying one or two products for the first time, they'll try four. Um, and the other thing we've started doing is including free samples with every order. Um, and we've actually had customers say on numerous occasions, I'm so glad I got a free sample of this because now I'm trying this product and I love it and I'm going to skip the full size. And so we're trying to do more of that. And the other thing we've done just of this year is to try and uh, outsource, we have outsourced um, a chunk of our products to be made into lower cost samples that we can more freely kind of give out to people and use as a marketing tool. And I, so I think, you know, once you get people to try the product, they're hooked but it's making that initial sale and getting people to try something new. That's really the challenge. Yeah. And, and once they're hooked into your product line, it's not like it's a bad thing you can't change because then they're going to keep buying from you too, right? Exactly. Yeah. They, that's the idea is we like to have customers for life. You know, we like to have customers that say, you know, I've, this is amazing. I've never tried anything like this. I'm never changing. Don't ever change this product. You know, <laughs> those are the gold customers. We really value them. We value all our customers, but, you know, especially the ones who are that loyal. All right. And so, you know, for the people that are interested in kind of hearing more about you, where can we find you online? So our website is originalmoxie.com, www.originalmoxie.com. And Moxie is spelled M-O-X-I-E. And there's tons of information on our website, as you've already pointed out. Um, and we're also very accessible by email. So if people have you know, hair care questions that they would like personal advice on, um, we're happy to do that at any time. To get more information about running an online store, visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast.